This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Donald Trump's former attorney flips, pleads guilty. We go in-depth into how this could be bad news for the former president down in Georgia. Governor Newsom headed to Israel next week. We look into what his true political moves are with this visit. Also, the future of affordable real estate in Southern California could be the 3D printed home. We'll explain how that will work. We start in Georgia with the election interference case and Sidney Powell's guilty plea. Melissa Redman is a law professor at the University of Georgia and former prosecutor in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Melissa, thanks for being with us. Yeah, good morning. Thanks. I'm sorry. Afternoon. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, I get it that uh, since she was one of the attorneys for Mr. Trump, uh, but they were allegedly talking about a crime, the lawyer-client privilege might not apply. On the other hand, does it not give the Trump team the opportunity to argue that point and thereby substantially delay the trial? Absolutely. Um, we know that one of the conditions of her of her plea were, was to is to provide documents subject to that attorney-client privilege. Now, she's previously indicated in pretrial filings and motions that she is not involved in, was not involved in the conspiracy, that she was not representing either Donald Trump or the campaign and had nothing to do with any of this, um, that she had basically been kicked out of the fold. Um, however, that would not stop Donald Trump um, from arguing that she was his attorney, as his privilege to waive. So there definitely will be some argument about whether or not she did represent him and whether or not the documents that the state wants are subject to attorney-client privilege. And then, as you mentioned, whether or not there will be an exception to that, a crime fraud exception to that privilege. And in this case, it seems to be focused on the uh, breach of election systems in Coffee County, Georgia. And some say that Sidney Powell getting off kind of easy here because uh, the recommended sentence prosecutors want six years probation, uh, also require her to testify at future trials, which is definitely going to present some problems for Donald Trump's defense. Uh, write that apology letter, pay some $9,000 in restitution. Did she uh, get off easy with her deal? Did, you, did she get a really good deal for her part? It is a really good deal. I the main um, part of the deal that makes it great for her is that they are allowing her to plead to these misdemeanors and suggesting in the disposition form on her sentence sheet that these are not crimes of moral turpitude. So that increases her chance of this plea not affecting her bar license. Of course, that's ultimately going to be up to the state bar of Texas, but it could potentially subject to her other issues that we you know she's facing allow her to get out from under this case and go on about her life and her practice so as a former prosecutor in georgia would you have made this kind of a deal with sydney powell and 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 if so why and if not why not i yes because you have someone in the inner circle she know this is someone who was in the room when these conversations were were happening when these decisions were being made so this is someone who can tell you what information did the defendants have at the time that they were in public saying that 
there was widespread election fraud, had they been told that there in fact was not, and that kind of goes to the whether or not there was criminal intent behind these actions. Of course, the defense is arguing that these were all legitimate actions. This was a legitimate investigation into what they believe to be improprieties in the election and the and, and protection of the of Donald Trump's rights in case the court decided that that was in fact true. The state's contention is these were all fraudulent acts. Uh, with the criminal intent to overturn a legitimate election. So this is someone who is in the petition in in the in a position to testify as to what was being said, what information they had, and the motivations behind those actions. So I absolutely would have made this deal. All right, Melissa Redmond, thank you so much. Uh, law professor at the University of Georgia and a former prosecutor in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Right now, though, Jim Jordan apparently telling Republican colleagues in the House earlier that he would support a temporary House speaker for the next few months as he tries to shore up support to win the job himself. But now he seems to have changed his mind and will seek a third vote soon, but we just don't know when. With us is Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. Luke, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so you're really on top of it there. Can you help tell all of us exactly what is going on? Well, the the long and short of it is that Jim Jordan is having a really tough time trying to get the votes to become speaker. He has failed twice on the House floor, uh, actually losing more support the second time than he had the first time. And so he's really struggling and trying to figure out what to do. Uh, This morning, he proposed the idea of empowering a temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry from North Carolina, uh, to serve as the speaker for the rest of the year. He faced a minor revolt from conservative Republicans over that proposal, and he quickly backed off it. So now he's trying again to have a third vote on his speakership, but it does not look good for him. He's meeting with the 22 Republicans who oppose him. They seem pretty dug in, and I'm not sure how he gets the votes at this stage, but he is saying he wants to go to the floor again. And I, I guess force a vote again with the hopes that he can flip some of these people who are who are dug in against him. You have had some uh, members of Congress say they got uh, threats for voting against Jim Jordan. I think another case, uh, a member of Congress said uh, his wife had gotten some intimidating text to her personal cell phone, which uh, points to somebody got doxxed at some point. Does that harden opposition to uh, Jim Jordan? Does that make somebody who was on the fence go, well, if you're going to use tactics like this, you're not going to get my vote. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, when you when you look at this, when Jim Jordan first launched this campaign, he had 55 Republicans who were against him. And they launched a campaign of pressure. You know, the allies of Jim Jordan did, the grassroots activists, and they posted the numbers of all these 55 members of Congress, or many of them online, and just the, the threats and intimidation came pouring in. I mean, you just mentioned Don Bacon, the text that his wife got. He's an, a congressman from Nebraska. He said his wife's now sleeping with a gun at night. Um, so this, these threats have come in. And yes, some people did back down and vote for Jim Jordan in the face of these threats, but others have dug in. There's a couple of them that, that say every threat I get, it makes me more determined not to vote for Jim Jordan because I won't support a bully. So 
Jim Jordan himself is now condemning these threats, saying that his supporters have gone way too far. It's not what he intended. But nevertheless, these threats still come, are still coming in, and it is not actually helping the Jordan campaign at all. I am curious, though, uh, Luke, how does Jordan, I mean, if, if you can try to sort of put us in his head, uh, if we want to be there, uh, how does he expect, even if he were to win the speakership, to actually control the House? I mean, when Kevin McCarthy, who, as you know, had a, a really difficult time getting himself uh, elected as Speaker of the House, and when he was Critics at the time said he's never going to be able to effectively, you know, control the House. And, of course, he he didn't. So why would Jim Jordan think that even if he managed to get the job, he would do any better? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is it may be true that the House Republicans are simply ungovernable, that there is, it's impossible to govern them, that no one can do it. Uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to do it. He still had a small minority on the far right that opposed him and ultimately kicked him out of office. The case for Jim Jordan, the one he put forward and his uh, supporters put forward, was that he was a favorite of the hard right, that he could control them, they trusted him, that he, those guys would be with him and they wouldn't fight him. And therefore, they could have peace in the House because the moderates generally don't like to fight. The more mainstream and centrist members usually don't try to blow things up. But in this case, it's the mainstream Republicans who are fighting Jim Jordan tooth and nail. It's one of the first times I've ever seen in Congress, actually, that they fought back against the hard right in any real determined way. And they are saying you are not going to be speaker after all the crap you guys pulled on us earlier. And so we're really seeing a standoff here. And I don't see at this point in time how he moves them. Uh, quickly, uh, where's Matt Gates in all this? I heard stories of closed door meetings where people are lunging again at Matt Gates, pointing the finger at him, saying uh, that uh, he is who got this whole thing started and he's responsible for all this chaos and uh, now going on three weeks of the House not having a speaker at all. Uh, does Matt Gates, does he survive? Uh, and I'm going to add politically. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, he is probably the most hated and loathed member of the House Republican conference right now. It's true that at a closed-door meeting today, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, was talking. Matt Gates started to interrupt him. Kevin McCarthy told him to go sit down. The conference started screaming at him. One member apparently lunged at Matt Gates. This was behind closed doors, so I didn't see it. I'm just telling what people people told me. Uh, Gates afterwards acknowledged that it was, you know, pretty rowdy in there. He he made a joke that Kevin McCarthy was Irish, so he lost his temper. But clearly, these guys do not like each other. Matt Gates went after McCarthy and succeeded. McCarthy loathes him. He loathes McCarthy, and it's really ugly right now with all these personalities fighting each other, no one working together, and just chaos reigning in the House of Representatives. Luke Broadwater, thank you so much for joining us today. Congressional reporter for the New York Times about chaos in Congress. You know, being the governor of California is a pretty good gig. You get to go, you know, one day you're in Sacramento, the next day you're in San Francisco, then L.A., Sandy. You get to go all over the place. Next stop, though, for Gavin Newsom is Israel. What's that about? Israel's defense minister has told ground troops to be ready to enter the Gaza Strip, but he did not say when 
the invasion will start. This comes as Governor Newsom says he's going to travel to Israel next week ahead of his big trip to China. Daryl Schrago is a political strategist and USC professor. Thanks for joining us today. Pardon me. Glad to be here. Uh, you know, this uh, trip that President Biden just completed uh, to Israel, uh, probably, maybe, we don't know, uh, could have delayed the invasion of Gaza. Is Governor Newsom's trip going to also serve as a delay uh, of that ground invasion, which is expected? Uh, we were told many days ago it was going to come at any time. Well, I mean, I think Governor Newsom's trip will serve a variety of purposes, both for him and for the people on the ground there. Uh, I doubt very much it would affect the Israeli decision about what to do with their troops. Let me ask you about, though, um, the what everyone widely perceives, even though he keeps denying it, is Gavin Newsom's intention to someday occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, I get it that California has... I think it's the largest, uh, I may be wrong about that, but I think it's the largest uh, uh, Arab-American population in the country, or at least yeah, that's right. That's right. That's and right, and yeah. the second largest uh, Jewish population, New York having the first, New York City. Right. Um, right. So clearly he has constituents in both of those areas that as governor of California would be politically good for him. But politically good for him for what? Another run at being governor or aiming for the White House? And if so, when? There's a lot of speculation that he wants to run for president. <clears throat> Pardon me, I have a little little frog in my in my throat. No, here. we we and, often we often choke people up. We understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm so emotional. And, and and you know, there's a lot of speculation that he wants to run for president. And I have had a number of conversations with people today who say, "Oh my gosh, this proves that he is running for president." Um, I don't think that's true. Um, he is clearly. Um, raising his profile nationally. There's no question about that, whether he wants to be president of the United States or whether he wants to be a, a prominent player in, in national politics and never run for office again. You know, maybe he knows. We don't know. Um, he has, as you said, a major constituencies in the in the state uh, for whom I think he wants to express uh, concern. And um, maybe I'm not sure empathy might be the right word. Um, if I were him, I'd be curious just to get a firsthand look at what's going on there. Uh, and he can do that. You know, you and I can't so easily. So there's a variety of reasons why he would go. And I think that uh, it's a mistake to draw a lot of conclusions as to what purposes he thinks this will serve. All right. So if he is uh, trying to raise his national profile, as you say, and uh, maybe uh, Gavin Newsom is, is playing some kind of long game, if he is playing a long game here, is he making the right moves? That's a great question, and the answer is we don't know because it all depends on what happens when he gets there, right? I mean, you know, look, I've, I've done this for a long time. I used to work in the U.S. Senate. I used to work for senators who always wanted to be on the spot when something happened, and they thought maybe they could be helpful. Um, but you just don't know till the trip is over, and maybe it will work out well for him and for the people he's meeting with. Or particularly in a highly charged situation like that, maybe something unexpected happens and he wishes he never went. There's just no way to tell. I mean, in American history, sometimes the White House has used high profile people as a vehicle for back channel discussions. Could that be Absolutely. what's going on here? 
Absolutely. He clearly has a very good working relationship with the president and with the administration, um, and they are using him. I think it is generally perceived as a, a sort of an attack dog. That may be a little, a little harsh term, but sort of that. So it may well be that he's going to be gathering facts and, and impressions or delivering message on, on behalf of the White House. All right, uh, Daryl Schrego, thanks so much for joining us, a political uh, strategist and USC professor, talking about uh, what is going on inside Governor Gavin Newsom's mind. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. 3D printers are hardly new, but what is new is what they can print. How about an entire house? Well, it's been done at Woodbury University in Burbank, an entire 425-square-foot home with us to try to explain all this is Aaron Gensler, Chair of Architecture at Woodbury University. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So give us a a kind of brief uh, explanation on how one uh, prints through a 3D printer a 425-square-foot home. What does that involve? Yeah, it's uh, a strange thing to witness, um, but really exciting. And it's an emerging technology, and it's so incredible to see the students really grapple with what that means. It's as if you would see a 3D printer that's a desk size blown up to the scale of a house. And so it literally pushes concrete through a nozzle and prints. So I think it not only impacts this, the the building itself, which was built in three days, like the walls went up in three days, um, but it also shifts how we think about form. So in a way, this is not so much a 3D printer. It's more of a robot building a house, right? Yeah. I mean, it is a robot building a house, a, a robot with humans. Uh, it, it's like one of our our um, our students helped and designed the house. They uh, permitted, they worked with city officials, they worked with um, uh, engineers across Los Angeles and Burbank, um, they fundraised, they permitted, and they built this house with the help of a robot. So what does a 3D printed house, uh, putting that together from scratch, how does that differ from the conventional way of putting together a 425 square foot house? Yeah, I, it it differs um, in some really substantial ways, but also it it doesn't in a lot of the, we have tools that we use to build houses and this is just another um, means of making um, and it's a uh, future looking. So instead of having multiple people come on site and build frames and then put, uh, or like use CMUs, it, it just prints the walls um, using concrete. The, we've used concrete. I know earlier in the show, you guys were talking about colorful plastic, um, which could um, be a future way of printing built space, but uh, the concrete becomes really beautiful. It has this straightation. You can see each line of the, the nozzle printing mechanism in the actual walls of the building. Yeah, but here comes the the sort of the good news, bad news part of it. The good news is, as you pointed out, instead of having a bunch of people hanging around putting together the house, the machine can do the bulk of it. Uh, the bad news is, is it a job killer? I don't think so. It's just a job transition. I think it's one of those things that allows, um, we have like a, a, our construction industry needs to sort of uh, meet the needs of housing insecure 
um, people across California and beyond. Um, and we need to be building faster and smarter. And so I think this really solves uh, a potential issue of just the timelines that we have and the, the need that we have. And what about the cost? Uh, if I'm a developer, does it uh, benefit me financially to build using 3D printing? Or would it be better for me to be a buyer and buy a home that's 3D printed as opposed to one built the old-fashioned way? Yeah, I think uh, it's a kind of complex question because it's still an emerging technology. So I think with any pilot programs, it costs a bit more um, to start. But I think as this evolves and moves forward, we could really look at a way to reduce cost. If you can have a, a field of 3D printed houses that could reduce the the bottom line significantly. Um, but I think if you're doing a one-off, it's a little bit more expensive. So we estimate this house costs around 230 to 250K. Um, but we would expect that a lot of that is in-kind donations and uh, one-off. But if this was uh, um, to be deployed at a larger scale, we expect it to be reduced to about 150 per unit. In, in terms of a larger scale, other than more houses, can this be used for much, much larger houses? I, completely. I think uh, across, th this is the first permitted 3D printed residence in Los Angeles and, and Burbank, but um, you're seeing this technology evolve across the world. And so if you look at sort of the, the work that's going on in Texas, there's whole um, uh, complexes that have really beautifully thought um, 3D printed homes. And if this thing scales up, uh, uh... How much difference would it make to the uh, housing industry if you're building these houses uh, using 3D printers? Uh, how how does that change how the housing industry looks? Does it make a big change or is it just another method? I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, it's a new method. And I think with new methods comes new opportunities. Um, but it it's still about sort of putting together residences uh, for people to live. And uh, a house in different forms is still a house. Okay, so let me uh, play the part of the party pooper, because uh, uh, historically, very few inventions, very few advances in technology didn't also have a downside. For everything I can think of, and probably you can think of, that has uh, uh, some amazing things because of it, there are also some pretty bad things because of it. Everything from computer technology to, to automobiles and planes that create pollution, you name it, there's a good and there's a bad. What's the bad side to this? Yeah, I think concrete is still not is not the most sustainable material. Our students work with engineers to develop a more sustainable concrete. And so I think there's still um, some uh, development that will continue to happen. It's new. So it's um, it, the feedback loop is really important. So it's important to be talking about um, what you consider party pooping, um, but it allows us to really reassess and reevaluate and redesign. But I think what um, is really inspiring to me is these are students who are really pushing the boundaries of um, what a house is, how a house is built, um, who needs housing, um, and really looking at the good and bad of, of what uh, this new technology can do. Aaron Gensler, Chair of Architecture at Woodbury University, talking about 3D printed houses. Thanks so much for joining us. Some college professors, they're speaking out about how new students might not actually be ready for all the work. Some have even complained that 
students are less engaged than they seem to have ever been. And it might be starting even before students get to college, and the pandemic might be to blame. Lee DeVille is Director of Undergraduate Studies for the Math Department at the University of Illinois, and Jenny Derrick is Dean of the Farmer School of Business at Miami University in Ohio. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, my first question to you, uh, Mr. DeVille, uh, Lee DeVille, is... Uh, this is doesn't look like it's so much about the learning aspect because we have we have taken a dive into that before that uh, some students at the uh, high school level and elementary school level are behind because of the pandemic and are fighting to catch up. But this seems to be more about kind of a work ethic, ready to buckle down and study hard as you have to do in college. Do I have that right? So I think I think that's part of it. I don't think that's entirely wrong. Although I think uh, the way I would describe it is, I would say, you know, one thing people don't realize, you know, learning mathematics, learning anything in a STEM field, in my experience, there's a large social component to that. Um, you, you, the students learn a lot from interactions with their peers. Uh, as much as as we like to stand in front of the classroom and teach them, uh, they do learn a lot from each other. And the pandemic certainly short circuited that. We uh, whether the students were in high school or uh, they were already undergraduates, uh, a lot of the things we normally would try to do with those students, uh, it was just harder to do that over Zoom. And they were, as much as we could talk to them over Zoom, they weren't talking to each other at all. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of aspects to it. Um, and I think I, I agree with you, though, that it, it is important to look beyond just the sort of academic classroom experience and think about the social aspects uh, and things like that as well. Jenny, let me ask you, you know, um, I was thinking before, uh, and and then as I was thinking, I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong about what I'm thinking, which, of course, I instantly dismissed. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, is it just that perhaps they're just dumber? I don't think so. I think our students are smart. They're engaged. I think to the point Lee made, there's a social aspect to learning, and I think we've all modified our teaching methodologies, and that's certainly true here at the Farmer School. We find that our students are engaged when they're working together in groups, without question. They want to be involved. They want to solve real problems. Client challenges are, are the things that get students lit up. And they also feel, one thing that we've noticed, that there are so many large societal problems out there, and the students feel so far away from being able to make an impact, and this can overwhelm them sometimes. So finding opportunities as well for students to engage in solving some of the big questions that we're all facing as people of, of the universe at the moment. And so I think your know, students will apply themselves and work incredibly hard if the conditions are right. Yeah, but here's the thing, though, that puzzles me, both of you. Um, generation after generation, every generation has issues and problems. There are generations that, that went to school and even to colleges during times of war. There are generations that went during times of, of draft. I mean, you name it. There have been innumerable problems that have uh, particularly zeroed in on a younger population that they needed to worry about. And they managed to uh, have a certain level of maturity, certainly by the time they got to the college level, to be able to deal with it. What's different now? Either one. Of you. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so one thing that strikes me is what's different now. Um, I think about my own college experience, and I have to admit that's probably about three decades over uh, past now. You know, our college experience was really is really not what these kids are seeing. Um, and I think even as adults, we notice, for example, there are so many, you know, phones, mm. you know, Slack, Internet. There's so many things that are trying to capture our attention. It's really hard to sit down and do any deep thinking 
or, or bang your head against a math problem for two hours, like you could back when things were quieter and easier. And so, um, so, you know, I, I think that, I think that that's one thing that students are seeing that their, their attention is more fractured, their, their schedules are more fractured. And I think that that adds a challenge. Now, of course, when you, when you bring it back to, you know, students that were coming back from a, a war or something like that, I, I, I think to be fair, the, the kinds of challenges students are seeing now are not comparable to what some of the earlier generations saw. But, you know, I think as educators in 2023, you know, we're just looking at what's in front of us and what are the challenges we're dealing with now. And, and, you know, so the comparisons to the past uh, don't always necessarily tell us what we should be doing right now for the students today. And, uh, and Jen, I, Jenny, your take on that. Yeah, if I add to that, I think don't forget also there's a 24-7 news cycle that the students are exposed to. So when I went to college, you know, 150 years ago, uh, you know, the, the news was on prime time in the evening. We'd read the morning news and that would be it. I think also uh, we the students, to your point, Lee, they're very over-functioned at the moment. There is a lot of activity going on. This starts right the way through almost at toddler stage. There is so much that families are getting their students to do, and this continues on into college. So we sometimes Sometimes think the students have got overly packed schedules. I think parents themselves worried about their students through COVID and they've overfunctioned for their students a little bit. And so we're trying to make sure that the umbilical cord gets cut firmly when the student enters college because our job as educators at, at the college level is to prepare students so they can hit the ground running when they graduate and add value to an organization from day one. So there's a lot of work that we're having to do at college just to get the students ready to go out the door. Yeah, but how do you deal with, you were talking about the accelerated rate of the world around them. That's not going to slow down. How do you deal with them? We spend a lot of time, there's a lot more counseling services, there's a lot more um, intervention that we provide students. We have to help them scaffold things, unpack things, manage anxiety. So there's a lot more resources that we provide here at college that we wouldn't have done perhaps even a decade ago. And that's certainly one solution. All right. Thank you so much uh, to our guests. We had uh, Lee DeVille, Director of Undergraduate Studies for the Math Department at the University of Illinois, and Jenny Derrick, Dean of the Farmer School of Business at Miami University in Ohio. Charles, I get the feeling you're still uh, going to go with your original theory. Well, I said, you know, that I thought about it, thought of it again, thought, well, maybe I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think so. No. <laughs> He's going with the dumb idea. All right. That's it for KDX. Not that you're dumb, Charles. I'm not saying that. Uh, that's it for KDX in Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.